Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. An expert of the law once asked him, Who is my neighbor? Jesus responded with a story. In his story, he explained that a Samaritan, a man of little standing, stopped to help an injured man after two respected religious leaders had each passed the man by. Jesus concluded this story by asking an interesting question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Neighbor, as Jesus defines it, isn't a noun, it's a verb. That's to say that being a neighbor is not simply something you are, it's something you do. It's not just being somewhere, it's being someone. Think about it this way. It's possible to live near someone and not be a neighbor as Jesus describes. You can be a neighbor without neighboring. As Jesus shows, neighboring involves two actions. First, taking relational initiative to reach out to someone. And second, expressing the love of God in a tangible way to those in your natural path of life. So imagine your neighborhood. If you are here, who are those around you? Do you know their names? Are there ways you can initiate friendships? Needs you can help fulfill? How can you be a tangible expression of the love of God to those in your neighborhood, or in your classroom, or your cubicle or office space? How are you neighboring? Jesus says our neighbor is anyone who is in our natural path of life, and neighboring involves initiating and expressing the love of God. Loving God means loving your neighbor. And this, Jesus says, is the greatest commandment. Great. Well, good morning. And uh, as you could tell by that video, that is uh, kind of a recap of a series that we jumped into last week uh, that we are calling Neighboring. So this is the second week in that series. And uh, basically what we're doing in the series, as you can tell by that video, is we're sort of talking about uh, the great commandment that Jesus gave. And so Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He answered quite simply. He said, love God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said, the second is you gotta love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's saying that loving God is gonna result in loving our neighbors. And so last week we started this conversation a little bit. And really the big idea of this series we've been saying is this, we've been saying, let's just imagine for a minute, what would it be like if we, if we were people, instead of being people that went to church, what if we were a church that went to people? Uh, what would that look like, right? If, if it, not just us being people that went to church, what if we were a church um, that went to people? That's kind of the big idea that we've been focusing on in the series. We've been saying, what would it look like in our neighborhoods? What would it look like um, in our city? What would it look like in our natural pathways of life if, uh, if rather than just being religious people who went to church, that we were people who were transformed by the love of God and in turn went and loved our neighbors. And so last week we kind of started that whole conversation up and, and we really just sort of set some foundation on that conversation. I would encourage you that if you missed last week or if it's your first time here as a guest, um, thanks for being here, but I would encourage you to go online to our website, graceohio.org, and you can either watch the last week's sermon to catch up, that's for free, um, or you can subscribe to our podcast. You can listen to that maybe on the drive to work or when you work out or whatever, but uh, that's an important conversation as we really laid a lot of foundation for this series. So today what we want to do is we want to continue in this conversation about what does it mean to neighbor, what does that practically look like, and I want to encourage you, if you would, just take your Bibles with me and go to John chapter 4. So take your Bibles with me, let's turn to John chapter 4 there in those Bibles that we have for you, John 4. And um, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's totally fine. We actually have some that are available for you, and that's going to be page 741 in those Bibles that we've laid out for you. You can turn to John chapter 4. If you're a smartphone person or a tablet person, 
uh, I'd encourage you to download an app, free Bible app called YouVersion, Y-O-U version. It's free, uh, multiple translations of the Bible, right at your fingertips, all for free. It's an awesome thing. And so however you get to John 4, go ahead and get there. And once you get to John chapter 4, just hold it open for a minute, and uh, we'll come back to that here in a second. Today, as we we're kind of talking about this idea of loving God and loving our neighbors, what does it look like to neighbor, I want to talk about a really important aspect um, as it relates to the conversation of neighboring. And my hope is to kind of dig into this conversation a little bit by, by first starting off by asking you a question. So let me, let me ask you a question, and particularly, I'm gearing this question to the person who follows Jesus. So I know that not everyone in this room today maybe follows Jesus, but for those of us who do follow Jesus, this is the question that I want to ask you, just to kind of get your wheels turning um, in the conversation I want to have. Here it is. Should we, and of course the we I'm referring to is those who follow Jesus, should we love our neighbors so that they will become Christians? And that's my question. Think about that. Should we love our neighbors uh, so that, with the intention that they will eventually become Christians? All right, now let me say it another way. Do we love, do, do Christians show love to their neighbors with the ulterior motive that, that our neighbors will eventually become Christ followers. In other words, are, is there strings attached to our love, right? Is there um, a hidden agenda, I guess you could say, or, or is there um, conditions to the love that we express to those who are around us that really we're secretly hoping that they will become a Christian? Is there something up our sleeve? Just think about that for a minute. I want you just to throw that in your brain and kind of wrestle around a little bit. And as you do, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about to kind of help clarify as we're thinking about this, right? So a couple years ago, my wife and I, we decided we were going to take my boys. I got two little boys. We decided we were going to take them to the playground. It was a really nice day. And if I remember right, it was during that time of the season where it was like spring, and it was like one of the first of the nice days. And so my wife and I were like, let's take the kids and get out of here. Let's you know, go play somewhere. So we went to this park. It was a, a park that wasn't too far from where we lived at the time. And it was, uh, it was one of these parks that just had, it was like a, a big park, had a lot of different things going on. So there was multiple pavilions. There was uh, several different playgrounds, one really big playground that was at this park. And uh, then there was sporting fields. So there was like a, uh, you know, a baseball field and there was um, a basketball court and all that kind of stuff. And so this was like one of the first nice days. So like everyone is at the park that day. And so my wife and I get the boys and we start walking to this playground. As we're walking to this playground, I see that there's this pavilion and there's clearly some, some activity that caught my attention going on at this pavilion. There was, I noticed there was a band that was playing. So they're playing uh, open air music. They had like a, a portable sound system that they were playing through. And they had this long table. And on the table I could tell there was like some food items that were there. And there was a bunch of people that were kind of congregated around that table. And they were all sporting the same shirt. So they're all wearing the same shirt. And what caught my attention is that there was this big sign that was hanging over that food table that real big, it just said, free hot dogs. And, um, and of course, that caught my attention because two of my favorite words in the English language are free and food. And whenever you put them together, then it's just like awesome. And so I was like, free hot dogs got my attention. So we started walking kind of towards the pavilion, sort of towards the park. And as I got closer and approached this pavilion, it became pretty clear to me. I was sort of able to discern what was going on. Like the band, I could tell when I got closer that the, the music they were playing was all uh, worship music, right? It was Christian music, the kind of stuff you'd only hear at church or if you listen to like Christian radio stations. So they were playing that kind of music. And, and the people that were all sporting the same shirt, they had pieces of literature in their hands, right? And so... 
pretty quickly, I think I was able to discern what was going on. My guess is you can too. Um, I, I figured out, I was like, this is probably a church outreach. I've been part of many of them. I've seen many of them. You know, I've been in the church world for a long time. That's a church outreach. So that's probably the worship band. Let's play in there. They're doing some worship songs they do on the weekends. Um, they're giving out free hot dogs, and these people have this literature. The literature is probably religious literature. It's talking about you know, the eternal salvation of Christ and all that kind of stuff. And so I saw it, and I just kept going to the park, and my wife, knowing my love for food, said to me, she's like, aren't you going to go get a free hot dog? And I looked at her, and this is what I said. I said, Jess, those hot dogs are anything but free. I was like, it's not a free hot dog. Because I know if I go over there and get one of them hot dogs, there are strings attached to that hot dog. That one of those people in those shirts with that literature, that that's going to warrant a conversation. And they're going to come up, and probably within a matter of a few minutes, they're going to be in a conversation about my eternal destination of whether I'm going to heaven or hell. And they're going to share. And I said, quite frankly, it's not worth the hot dog for me. I don't want to have the conversation, right? And, and so we just kind of kept going. And I noticed that day, full day, tons of people at this park, and nobody was getting a free hot dog because I think everyone knew it probably wasn't a free hot dog. There's probably some strings attached to it. Now, I want you to hear my heart on this, okay? Understand me. I am not trying to be unnecessarily critical about what another church is doing at all. I think that any church that's trying to show the love of Jesus to their community is, is uh, probably you know, ahead and, and above where uh, most churches are at, so I'm not trying to be unnecessarily critical. But what it does do, that scenario, is it causes us to ask an important question, right? For those of us who follow Jesus, do we extend love to other people? Do we care for our neighbors the way Jesus told us to? Because we hope that they'll become Christians. Is that why we do this? So that they'll be Christians. Are there strings attached to that? Is that the ulterior motive that's going on in our heart? Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, maybe someone invited you here today and you're not real sure what you believe about the whole faith thing, my guess is if you're not a Christ follower, this might be one of the problems that you have with Christianity. This might be it. Maybe, maybe you're the kind of person you're like, look, I, I, I get the whole Jesus thing and it's fine, but why are my Christian friends always trying to convert me? Why are you always trying to convert me? Why are you always trying to push your belief system onto me? Can't you just believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe and we can just be friends? And can't you just love me without, without wanting me to follow Jesus and always wanting to share your faith? And for some of you, if you're not a Christ follower, that might be the very problem you have with Christians. Right? Now, here's the thing. And, and what I just said, you really have two, two extremes represented. Right? On one side... You have this idea that Christians should love their neighbors solely because they want their neighbors to become Christians. There's, there's an agenda. On the other side, you have this idea that Christians should love their neighbors and they should keep their faith to themselves, keep quiet about their Christianity. And what I hope to do today is I hope to, 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 to in this passage, we look at it, to tell you that both of these extremes present some very serious problems. There's problems with both of these. And I want to try to talk through that, and I think this passage is really going to help us. It's going to help us not only see why Christians should love their neighbors, but also how Christians should love their neighbors. So John 4, you probably already flipped there, so let's just go ahead and start at the top. Let's start at verse 1. Work our way through this passage, and then after we're done working through, we'll circle back around and, and wrap things up. So starting off in verse 1 here, John chapter 4, says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea 
He went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria. Okay, let's just pause there. Let me just tell you what's going on. It's basically, Bible tells us uh, in the book of John, Jesus has kind of just launched his ministry, John chapter three. And now that he's launched his ministry, the Bible tells us he starts gaining reputation. Um, he starts to attract the attention of people. And as a result of attracting attention, the Bible tells us the Pharisees, the religious leaders, begin to take notice. It develops some controversy. So Jesus, realizing that his popularity is starting to cause controversy, decides he's going to get out of town. He says, I'm going to take my, my boys, my disciples, we're going to get out of town. We're going to go back to Galilee. Now, um, the Bible tells us in verse 4 there, notice it says, he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. In other words, it was an imperative. Uh, Jesus was resolute that they were going to go through Samaria. Now, that's an important thing right there. And let me just explain why that's important. Let me just, I think the best way to explain it is probably to show you a map. So let me just show you, this is the, the, the geography, real basic, real basic map of what it would have looked like in Jesus' times. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus is in Judea at this time. He realizes that there's some controversies, like we're going to get out of town, we're going to go up to Galilee. Now you can tell from this map, right, that the, the quickest distance between two points is a straight line. So it would only make sense that Jesus would go through Samaria. It just makes sense, right? Go through Samaria, it's the quicker route. The problem was this, and if you were with us last week, you might remember this. There was a strong racial hostility that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans, if you were with us last week, I won't go too much into it because we talked about this. Samaritans were considered second-class citizens, less than second-class. They were considered less than human. And so the Jewish people wouldn't even interact with the Samaritans. They wouldn't talk to them wouldn't address them, wouldn't speak with them, wouldn't touch them, wouldn't touch anything that they touched. And so most Jewish people, when they were traveling from Judea to Galilee, which were both Jewish regions, the route that they would take would be this. They would go all the way around Samaria. They would go through Perea, up into Decapolis, and up into Galilee. That would add uh, unnecessary miles, add more time to their trip. But they hated the Samaritans so much that the Jews would take that route to get there. Now, the Bible tells us that when Jesus goes, he says, no, we're going to go the straight route. We're going through Samaria. We, 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 he was resolute on this. We got to go. Guys, we're going through the hood. All right, let's go. Let's pack up and let's get going. So the Bible says that they decided they were going to do this. Now, you can tell on this map that about halfway, the halfway point in this journey would have been a very important little city. Uh, actually, it wasn't a little, it was a big city, a very important city that was in Samaria, a city by the name of Sychar. Okay? And this is where we're going to find Jesus in verse 5. So look at verse 5. It says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, that's the town we just saw, near the plot ground of Jacob that he had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, So imagine this. Uh, the Bible tells us that it's about noon. They're about halfway through their journey. So they would have probably started the journey early in the morning. They would have been walking all day. Just imagine dry, arid, hot climate in this part of the world. So these guys are walking all day. They're tired. They're hungry. They're thirsty. It's noon, which is the peak of the heat. You know, back noon is like the top of the top of kind of the heat index for the day. And so he's hot. The Bible says he's tired. He sits down at this very historic well. There's some Old Testament references there. This was a well-known well. Jesus sat down here at Sychar. And check this out, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Okay, so 
Here the Bible wants us to know that Jesus and this woman are by themselves. Jesus goes to this well where his disciples, well, verse eight tells us that his disciples went into the town to buy food. The town was about a mile away. The town of Sychar would have been about a mile from this well, which uh, I don't know why, but it struck me as humorous this week when I read verse eight because I thought about it. I was like, how many disciples did Jesus have? How many disciples did he have? Not a trick question, you know? 12, right? How many guys does it take to get lunch? Seriously. So they all go, I guess. I don't know. So Jesus is by himself, and here he is sitting at this well, and the Bible says that while he's at this well by himself, exhausted, tired, it's noon, this woman comes to the well, this Samaritan woman. Jesus initiates a conversation with her. He says, can you give me some water? I'm hot, I'm thirsty, I've been traveling all day. Can you, can you give me some water? And watch this woman's response. Check this out in verse 9. The woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. And so the Bible says when she, when, when she realizes that Jesus is talking to her, I mean, you can imagine this, right? She comes to the well. Jesus is sitting there. He's a Jewish man, uh, a rabbi at that. And there he is sitting there. She's a Samaritan woman. And she sees Jesus, probably some awkward tension. And, and she's probably trying to avoid him. And Jesus breaks all the cultural norms and he starts talking to her. Hey, can you give me something to drink? The Bible says she's shocked. Now, why was she shocked? Well, the reasons she's shocked are probably the same reasons why uh, the, the ancient reader, the person that was reading this in the first century, would be shocked. I want you to notice something. I want to point something out that's not obvious, but it will become obvious as we read this passage. That one of the things that we're going to learn about this woman is that she would have been on the wrong side of every social issue of her time, the wrong side. Not only was there racial hostility, right, between the Jews and the Samaritans, she was a Samaritan, not a Jew. She was on the wrong side of that social issue. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. But the Bible tells us that there's also, during this time, there was gender hostilities. Some of you know this, back in Jesus' time when he lived, unfortunately, just the way it was, is women did not have the same equal rights that men did. Um, they were considered like a step above cattle in that time. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's the way it was, right? Women were considered sort of this, on the second class, sort of below men. In fact, the testimony of a woman in this time didn't even count in court. They, didn't, they weren't considered um, being viable uh, testimonials in a court setting. And so they didn't really have many rights. And so the Bible tells us she's a Samaritan, not a Jew, She's a woman, not a man. She's on the wrong side of every social issue. Here's the big one. She was immoral, not moral. And, and when we go through this passage, one of the things that we're going to learn about this woman is she has a very, very bad reputation. Right? And the reputation that she has is one of sexual immorality. She would have been considered kind of a loose girl. And, and so back in this culture, I mean, you can imagine our culture today, um, we tend to be a little more liberal on those things. Back in this culture, man, it was, a, it was a strong religious, strong moral culture. And so imagine, here's a woman who is known for her, her promiscuous reputation. So she's a Samaritan, not a Jew. She's a woman, not a man. She's a moral, not moral. In fact, commentators point out oftentimes that um, this conversation that happened between Jesus and this woman was at noon. A lot of commentators think that's real significant. Here's why. Back in this culture, uh, the women would be the ones who would get the water. It was kind of a woman's job, 
again, not to be derogatory, it's just in that culture, it was the woman's job to go get water. And the women back in this time, typically what they would do is they would get the water during two times during the day. They would get the water during uh, the morning when it was the coolest. And they would go, before it got real hot, they'd walk a mile out to this well, get the water, take, take the journey back, and then they'd come again at the end of the day, at the, when it, things kind of cooled off at the end of the, the day. They would go back and get water. And typically, they would do this together. The women of the culture would go get water. They would take this mile journey. They'd get water. They'd carry it back a mile back in the city. They'd do this together. So the well, just imagine with me, this would have been like the social hub for the women of this time. So you can imagine, this is the place you catch up on life. How's your husband? How's Hank doing? Oh, he's good, you know? That's where that's happened. How are the kids doing? They're good. Oh, we decided to switch from a horse to a camel. You know, I got better safety ratings. And that's, kind of, and that's just kind of like, uh, you know, mini caravan. That's terrible. And, uh, and so they, they would just have these conversations. It would have been like the modern-day equivalent, I think, of like Facebook, right? This would be the place where you post pictures of your kids and the place where you post pictures of your food and your yoga class and whatever else you're posting. This would be the place that that would happen. And the girls would all talk about that together. This would have been, in my, in my mind, this is like the, the ancient equivalent of Pinterest, this is where all the women would come together and share ideas, right? Look at your water pot. So cute. You painted flowers on it, you know? And they would share these ideas. It was this hub of activity. And of course, because these women are human, this would be the place where gossip would happen too. Now notice, this, and they would do this in the morning, they'd do this in the evening, they would do it together. Notice, this woman's alone, and it's at noon, hottest part of the day. Why? I'll tell you why. Because these other women hate her. They would have hated her. Be because of her reputation, because of her immorality, she would have been rejected. She would have been the talk of the town. She would have been the butt of jokes. She was loose. She was the outcast in this society. And I want you to see this, that this woman represents really for us the epitome of the outcast. She was, she was at the very bottom of the social stratus. She was a Samaritan, not a Jew. She was a woman, not a man. She was immoral, not moral. A Samaritan woman would have been the lowest person in that social system, and even the Samaritan women didn't want anything to do with her. That's how far down she was. And so when, and here's the beautiful picture we see in this passage. The beautiful picture is that here's Jesus Christ, right, the Son of God, and he's sitting down at this well, and he initiates a conversation with this woman that no one else is willing to talk to. What a beautiful picture. The son of God talking to this woman that no one else will talk to. And so when he says to her, well, you get me a drink, the Bible says that she's shocked. So she's like, you, you want me to get you a drink? Do you know who I am? Basically, it's what she's, you, you have any idea who I am? Which is so funny because Jesus responds back in verse 10 basically with, do you know who I am? Watch what he says in verse 10. This is awesome. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, I love that about Jesus. He's like, if you, if you knew who you were talking to right now, you would ask me to give you living water, a free gift, and I'd be glad to give it to you. Now, I don't know how, I don't know how Jesus would have said this. I wasn't there. None of us were there, but... I'm just guessing. When I read this and what I know about Jesus, my guess is that as he interacted with this woman, it would have been a very gentle way of, of, of talking with her. And my guess is it, must, it was probably pretty winsome. 
right? He was probably just this winsome character. He's talking to her and she's like, he's like, can you give me some water? She's like, do you know who I am? He's like, if you knew who I was, you would ask me to get you some water and I would give you living water. I would give you the free gift that God wants to give you. Now, what's Jesus talking about when he's talking about living water? Well, here's what he's talking about. And many of you know this if you've studied this passage before. Jesus isn't talking about physical water here, right? He is drawing a spiritual metaphor. And he's talking about soul satisfaction. That's what he's talking about. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you living water that would quench the deepest desires of your heart. I would give you water that would give you soul satisfaction, soul satiation. That's what I'm looking to give you. And so Jesus kind of draws this metaphor. But of course, the Bible tells us that she hears this and she just doesn't understand what he's talking about at all. And so look at her response. Check out, check out here in verse uh, 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So, so Jesus is like, he's like, you come, he's like, if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you living water, living water. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket, dude. How are you going to get water? And, and she's like, he's talking spiritual. She's like still on the physical thing. She don't understand what he's saying. So Jesus realizes she's not picking up on the metaphor. So he kind of deepens the language a little bit, kind of changes it. And watch what he does next. So verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Watch this. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Huh. Hmm. Maybe Jesus isn't talking about water. Right? This, it's going to be in you, and it's going to well up to eternal life. So Jesus strengthens the language to help her understand, I'm not talking about physical water here. I'm talking about something deeper, something inside of you. I'm talking about a spiritual reality. So he ups the language. The Bible tells us that even though he does that, she still is totally not following what he's saying. So look at this. This is kind of interesting. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty. I have to keep coming to this well to draw water. So she's like, wait, you have like magic water or something? If I drink it, I'm never going to be, you got that? Well, that sounds good to me. Give it to me because if I have to keep coming back to this well time and time again, multiple times a day, man, I'd rather you just give me that water. Now, you got to understand, in this culture, commentators estimate that women would have spent up to 50% of their waking hours, right, uh, pursuing water, walking down to the well, pulling the water out of the well, carrying the water back into town, another mile into town. And the way they would do this, there's still cultures that kind of do the same thing, is they would carry it on their head, Right? And so I just threw a picture up here for you real quick just so you could imagine what this must have been like. So imagine every day these women, this Samaritan woman, would go to the well, take a, a mile hike down to the well. She'd pull this pot all the way down in the well, pull it back up. It probably would weigh, I don't know, 50 pounds, 50 pounds, something like that. Hoist it onto her head. I mean, these women back in this time had some strong necks. They must have been like rippling neck muscles. And they would carry it back a mile into town. And then they would use it during the day to clean, to wash for you know, household purposes. And they'd come back at night and they would do it again and again. And they would go back and they would do it again. Imagine how tiring this task must have been. They spent so much time 
doing it. And this woman's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're, you're going to give me water? I stop doing this? I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. I'd love to knock that off my to-do list. But here's the thing. For this woman in particular, it would have been more than just the physical rigor. For her, every time she took that walk, right, from, from, from the town to the well, it would have been a reminder to her every step of the way of her loneliness, of, of the way that those perceived her, of her guilt, of her shame. Every time she went out, she would walk past the other women in the town. She would hear them laugh. She would, I mean, can so she's like, if I can stop taking this walk, I would be very happy to do that. So if you've got some water for me that means I can stop doing this, then give me that water. She's still thinking physical, but Jesus is talking spiritual. So watch what he does next. This is awesome. Jesus just drops the metaphor. He's like, okay, that's not working. Let's just go right for it. And, and this next statement he makes, man, this was bold. Look at this. He told her, go call your husband and uh, come back. And th this, for us as a reader, this seems kind of abrupt. We're talking about water, or, you know, living water. And then she's like, can you give me this water? And he's just abruptly is like, go get your husband. What's he doing here? Now, what you've got to understand is Jesus, with the ability to be able to discern this woman's heart, he was able to see when he would have said that one statement, go get your husband, he would have, with that one statement in a very pointed way, he would have been touching right into the deepest, darkest places of her heart. This issue, the issue of her husband, was the epicenter of her reputation, of her bad reputation. This was the, the, the central point of her pain. And Jesus, talking with her, goes right there. He's like, so can you go get your husband for me? And you can tell by her response, the, just the brevity of her response. She's not interested in having this conversation. She's like, don't talk about that. Look at her response. I have no husband, she said. She's just like, I want to talk about that. Where's your husband? Don't have one. Let's talk about something else. And, and I mean, Jesus is, he is getting down to the, the source of her pain, the source of her guilt. But watch this. He doesn't stop. Watch what he does next. This is crazy. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. You're right about that. You're right. The fact is, you've had five. And the man that you have now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. You see what Jesus does in this moment. This is wild. Jesus points right to her pain. Where's your husband? She's like, I don't have one. I don't want to talk about that. And he's like, you're right about that. And then he goes on to expose her. He says, you're right. In fact, you know what? I know everything about you. I know about all the men. You're right to say, you're right when you say you have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're living with right now is not your husband. This would have been the source of her guilt and shame. Remember, this cult, we live in a culture today, we tend to be more loose on these issues, but even in our culture, if someone had been married five times and divorced five times and was on their sixth, that's even excessive in our culture. This culture was one where if you were divorced once, you were considered an outsider. Five times. And the man that she's living with right now, her living boyfriend, is not her husband. Why is Jesus doing this? She knows her pain. Why is he exposing her and, and drawing out all of this? Why is he doing that? 
Is he just doing that so that she'll feel guilty and feel more shamed? Is he just pulling that out to unnecessarily exploit her? Is that what Jesus is doing? Let me tell you, that's not what he's doing. Here's what Jesus is doing. And I want you to see this brilliantly. What Jesus is doing is he's helping her understand I'm not talking about physical thirst. I'm talking about an inner thirst. He says, you keep going back to find water over and over again. And what's the well that you keep going to? He's like, you've been there five times already and it looks like you're going there a sixth time. You keep going to these men to find a satisfaction, to find uh, whatever it is inside of you that you're hoping to fill, you keep going back to the same place. And as exhausting as it is for you to go out and fill your jar with water and come back and do it time, it's equally as exhausting for you to bounce from man to man to man to man to man. And there's this inner thirst inside of you that is not being quenched by any... Jesus is pointing it out to her. He's showing her the source of her pain and the source of her hurt, not because he wants to unnecessarily exploit her, because he wants to help her understand what he's talking about. I'm the living water. I have living water that I'm going to give you. It's going to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, the inner parts of you that are unquenchable, the void inside of you that you're trying to fill with these other things. That's the thing that I want to fill. It's amazing what happens next. The Bible basically tells us that the woman's like, you must be a prophet or something. I don't know how you knew that. And then they get in this conversation a little bit about religion, and they kind of go back and forth. And eventually she's like, you know what? When the Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this to us. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am he. I am the Messiah. He reveals to her, I am the Son of God speaking with you right now. And the Bible tells us something interesting. It says that right when they get in the point of that conversation, the disciples come back from lunch. And, uh, and it was like such inconvenient timing. They're having this great conversation. The disciples are like, oh, hey, we're back from lunch. What are you doing, Jesus? And, and then the Bible tells us this really interesting thing, what happens with this woman. Watch this. Look at verse 28. It says, then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and she said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way to him. Now I want you to notice something here. That John, the author of this book, wants us to know a very little detail. He wants us to know that this woman left her water jar and went back in the sea. Now why did, why did he include that detail of her water? Why, who cares about the water jar? Well, here's why. He intentionally left that detail because he wants us to know that this woman found the source of eternal life. She found living water. She doesn't need her water pot anymore. So she leaves it. She leaves it there. And what does she do? The Bible says she runs into town, the town that she's trying to avoid, to the people that she's trying to stay away from, from the people that look down at her and criticize her. She now is, instead of avoiding them, she's running to them. And she's telling them, you guys, you guys, you have to come meet this man. He told me everything I ever did. And they're like, everything? And she's like, everything. And they're like, like Bill and Jack and Cletus. I don't know. You know and Bill, everything. She's like, everything. They told me everything. And then she's like, and you got to come meet him because I think he's the Messiah. I think it's him. 
Let me ask you a question real quick. What would possess the most severe outcast in that society? A woman who is hated on the wrong side of every social issue. What would possess her to run into a city with disregard to personal possession, with disregard to personal reputation, with disregard to the way that those who, who, who are around her perceive her, what would possess her to run in and say, you guys, I have to tell you something. You have to come and see this guy because he's the Messiah. What would possess someone to do that? I'll tell you what would. She, she was revolutionized by the grace of God. She was wrecked by God's grace. See, there was two truths that got a hold of her heart. She, she basically came to these people. She said, you guys, I met a man who saw right through me. I met a man who saw the deepest, darkest parts of my heart, who saw the epicenter of my guilt and shame and dysfunction. I met a man who saw me to the bottom and he loved me to the skies. I met a man who saw me for all I am and didn't reject me and didn't push me to the side and didn't say you need to do these things and get better, but embraced me and loved me and cared for me. And she said, and now I don't care anymore. You have to meet him. She was wrecked by the grace of God, wrecked, transformed by a love that overpowered her sin. So much so that she went right back, marched right back to the people that she rejected and said, you got to meet this guy. Told me everything I did. Love me to the bottom. Saw me to the bottom. Love me to the skies. The Bible says something awesome happens. The Bible says the whole town basically goes and listens to Jesus. A bunch of them come to know Christ. Like the whole city is turned upside down for Christ. It's an amazing thing. And it helps you understand why Jesus had to go to Samaria. Now you're like, oh, that's why he had to go to Samaria. And here's the interesting thing about this whole conversation. You and I today, we live in a culture for the most part that tells us this. Our culture tells us, believe what you want to believe, right? Just believe what you want to believe, but don't you dare ever try to push that on anybody else. You believe what you believe, but don't tell anyone else what you believe. You keep that secret. It's a private issue and you should never try to push that on anyone else. Any, everyone can believe whatever truth works for them but no one should say that they have an ultimate truth claim. No one's truth is better than anyone else's truth. Now, I talked about the beginning of the sermon that there's some of you maybe who are not followers of Jesus, or maybe some of you who are, and this is your problem with Christianity, right? You're like, why do Christians always feel like they need to tell me about Jesus, convert me to Jesus? Why can't we all just believe what we believe and just not push anything on each other, and no one should say that their truth is any better than anyone else's truth? Let me just say this, all right? If that is your view, if you're a person who believes that, if you believe no truth is better than any other truth, and no one should make an ultimate claim on truth. I think you need to understand that that doesn't make sense. I think there's some problems with that in two ways. Let's mention two of them. There's two problems. The first problem is this. Logically, it doesn't make sense. Logically. And the second thing is, practically, it doesn't make sense. So let me just talk about it logically. All right, if, if you're going around, if, if this is your position, and you're telling people, you, you, you cannot make any ultimate claims about truth, and you cannot make any ultimate claims about truth, and you cannot make any ultimate claims of truth. You got to be honest that that is very illogical because what you're doing is you're doing the exact same thing that you are condemning other people for. By saying nobody should make an ultimate claim on truth, 
Are you not in saying that, making an ultimate claim on truth? Are you not saying, you need to think like I think? It's fine if you believe what you believe, but don't infringe that on anyone else. So, so what are you doing? You're infringing your belief that everyone should be tolerant of everybody else on everybody else. And so if you're going to go around pointing the finger at everyone else and saying you shouldn't make any ultimate truth claims, you need to point your finger back at yourself and say, am I not doing the same thing? It doesn't make sense logically, but the more important thing is it doesn't make sense practically. Practically doesn't make any sense. Think about it. If I believe, and I do by the way, if I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that he is the living water that satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul, if I believe that, about Jesus, and I do. If I believe that Jesus Christ is the savior of humanity who died for our sins to take away our guilt and shame, if I believe that about Jesus, and I do, if I believe that the hope of your marriage is ultimately rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I believe that the hope of your addictions, overcoming your addictions, is ultimately found in the hope of Jesus Christ, and I do believe that, I would reckon with you that if I loved you and cared for you and I never shared that with you, if I really believe that, if I really believe that, I'd reckon with you that I must hate you. To purposely withhold the living water and simply meet temporary needs and never address the physical, the, the spiritual eternal need, I reckon I must hate you. If I really believe that's true, if I really believe that's true, I believe that I must hate you. So, so how do we understand this? Well, I put it this way in your notes. I don't know if this is a helpful thought, but this is the way I jotted it down in my notes. I put it this way. I said that we, that Christians, we don't love our neighbors so that they will, be, so that they will become Christians. We love our neighbors because we're Christians. So, so Christians, we don't love our neighbors with some hidden agenda, with some hokey, gimmicky sales pitch that the only reason I'm, I'm caring for you is because I want you to be a Christian. We love our neighbors because we're Christians, because we're transformed by the love of God. God's love has transformed us, and now we can't help but love other people, regardless of what you believe, regardless of what you will believe. We just love you. But you have to be honest and say this, that, 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 that sharing our faith, that telling people about Christ is not an ulterior agenda, but it is the ultimate expression of love. For me to withhold that would not be a loving thing. And so the Bible calls us to this. It calls us to love our neighbors. And the full expression of love is to share living water with those who are around us. I was thinking about this message and I was trying to think of how could I maybe add some practical challenge to kind of help us internalize this message a little bit. I said, I want this to be a practical series. So let me just give you a couple things for a couple audiences and then we'll be finished. All right. So a couple challenges. Let me speak first to the person who's investigating Jesus. If you're a person that's investigating Christ this morning, you're not real sure what you believe about Jesus, let me just speak to you for a minute. And um, if you've been with us for a while, you've heard me say this, and I, my hope is that you understand that I really mean it. I'm not just saying this to say it. We, we say it a lot, but I really do mean it. Is that if you're investigating Christ, we count it an honor that you would let us be part of that investigation. I know that you can go anywhere. You could do anything on a Sunday afternoon, anything you wanted to. You don't have to come here. But the fact that you're here and that you're willing to let us process and to be part of your investigation, I count it as a high honor, and I genuinely do. But I do need to be real honest with you. I'll just tell you the truth. If you're like, if you're investigating Christ and you're like, 
um, are, are you okay if I never accept Christ? Like, is that cool with you? I, I would be lying to you if I told you that I was. Not, not that that means that I don't, no pressure, no strings attached. We love you regardless of what you decide to believe. But listen, we, I, we as believers, we want everyone else to know Jesus. And I, I, I don't want to, cons- I don't have any ulterior motive. There's no tricks up our sleeve. I'm not like trying to get you to eat a hot dog and whoops, I'm a Christian. That's not what we're trying to do at all. But, but, but listen, the ultimate, we believe that the ultimate expression of love is knowing Jesus. And I would lie to you if I told you that I don't want you to come to know Christ. Of course I want, I perceive that I would hate you if I really believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, if I really believe that he's transformed my life the way that he has, I would hate you if I didn't. And so even if you never come to know Christ, you're always welcome here. You're always welcome to process. And we don't love you with those strings attached, but you need to know that we do want you to know Jesus, really, genuinely. It reminds me of Paul. You guys remember Paul a few weeks ago? We looked at the book of Acts. You remember when he was in front of Agrippa? Remember what he said? Agrippa's like, are you trying to convert me, Paul? Remember what Paul said? He's like, oh, yeah, huh? He's like, and not just you, like everybody. Like equal opportunity. And, and some of you are like, are you, trying to, are you trying to tell me about Jesus? Uh-huh, yeah. Do you want me to be a Christian? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, not just you, everybody. I mean, you know, everybody. But does that mean that our love is conditioned on that? No. No, 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 no. We love you because God loved us. Not so that you'll become a Christian. We love you because God loves you. But I'd lie to you. If I told you I don't want you to know Jesus. I believe Jesus wants to come into the deepest longings, the deepest thirsts of your heart and satisfy. He's the living water. And why would I not want that for you? So for those of you who are not believers in Jesus, I hope it makes sense. If it doesn't, I'd love to chat with you. And we can even get coffee if you want to. I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee or if you want to buy me lunch, I'll buy you coffee. You can buy me lunch and uh, that'll be (laughs) fine. Um, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I just have a practical challenge and then we'll be done. Okay, here's my challenge for you. I want you to go to your neighbors this week, knock on the door of two neighbors, and I want you to simply say, I love you and Jesus loves you. <laughs> I'm totally joking. <laughs> you laughed. That's good. You guys should have seen that. I'm totally kidding about that. At the 10 o'clock service, I said that and everyone was like, I was like, see, you guys taking me for real right now? So no, I'm kidding. Don't do that. That's weird. All right, don't do that. Um, But I do have, I really genuinely have a challenge. Here's my challenge for you, okay? Don't go to your neighbors and do that. Seriously, don't do that. Um, I want you to do this, all right? I want to challenge you to take some time this week. I want you to write a letter. That's what I want you to do, all right? And I want you to write a letter to the person that was the most influential in your life in helping you know Jesus. For those of us who follow Jesus, Write a letter to that person. Now, for some of you, I was like 20 years ago, you don't even know where that person is at anymore. For some of you, that person might not even be alive anymore. And it doesn't matter. If they are alive, awesome. If you can send it to them, great. But if you can't, fine. All right, I just, I think that writing this letter, the reason I want you to write this letter is because I think it's gonna do a couple things. One of the things I think it's gonna do is it's gonna create an amazing amount of thankfulness in your heart that someone was bold enough to share with you the love of Jesus. And I think it's gonna inspire you to realize that the ultimate expression of our love is to share the hope that we have. So let me ask the band to come up right now. And as they do, I thought I'd share my letter with you. All right, I'm not gonna do, I'm not, I'm I'm gonna do everything I'm asking you to do too. So I'm just gonna read this to you. Um, 
Some of you know my story. I came to know Christ late in my teen years. Uh, my Aunt Andrea was a major part in me coming to Jesus. She, she, was, uh, she invested in me in really big ways, and I came to know Christ really because of her investment. It was a major part of it. And <clears throat> So I wrote her a letter. She still is in my life. I haven't said this. I'll send it this week, but this is what I wrote to her. I said, uh, Aunt Andrea, I was recently thinking about you and the incredible difference that you made on my life. And as you recall, as a teenager, I was, painfully, I was a painfully shy, long-haired punk. On the outside, I'm sure I was hard to approach and I was difficult to engage with. And I tried to make it that way purposefully. But the truth is, on the, on the outside, I may have seemed inapproachable, but on the inside, I was deeply insecure and I continually felt like I didn't belong. While I'm sure that most teenagers struggle through this phase of life, I also found that very few adults are up for the challenge of engaging in the life of a person in this phase. But that is exactly what you did. Rather than back away, you leaned into a relationship with me. I remember when you invited me to youth group, the youth group that you were serving in. And honestly, I was intimidated and scared. But I was thankful that someone would even think to invite me. You persisted to invite me over and over again. You took your time every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night to pick me up in your Nissan Pulsar with T-tops. It's amazing. It's amazing what you remember as a teenager. It was through that youth group that I was introduced to the teachings of Jesus in a relevant way. And it was through that youth group that I eventually gave my life to Jesus. I'll never forget the day I received Christ. It's permanently etched itself in my mind as the crucial turning point of my life. I have time and time again looked back at that day as the beginning point of a new life. In Christ, I found life, I found meaning and purpose, and I found hope. It would have been easier to just drive yourself to church. It would have been easier to stay quiet, to keep your hope in Jesus to yourself. It would have been easier to let my inapproachability overcome your care, but you cared enough about me to inconvenience yourself so that I might share the hope that you found in Jesus. For your generosity, I'm eternally grateful. You showed me in a tangible way what the love of Jesus looks like. You shared your life with so many teens in our youth group during that time. I'm sure at times you wondered what difference that investment made. Setting up snacks, tearing down chairs, hosting all-nighters, teaching Bible lessons to a crowd of hyperactive, inattentive teens. And for what? I just want to tell you that it did make a difference. And it continues to make a difference. I don't know where I'd be if you hadn't cared enough to reach out and share the most valuable treasure that I possess. So I wanted to write to simply say thank you. Sincerely, your long-haired punk teen nephew. I just got to tell you guys, man, when I wrote this letter, I just cried. And it's, I don't cry. It just surprised me. It surprised me how meaningful and important that was. And I thought about it. I had never really said thank you to her. And, and it was what it did in my heart. I just want to tell you, and this is why I want you to do it. What it did in my heart is it, it made me overflow with gratitude. I am so thankful that somebody cared that much. That they were willing to go all the way in their love. And not just help meet my temporary needs, 
but give me something of eternal worth that would utterly change the direction of my life and my family and for me, my career, everything. I was so filled with gratitude that someone cared. And I'll tell you what it did. It also emboldened me. It gave me boldness to say, man, I want to do it too. I, I want to love that way too because it's transformed me. I want to love in the same way. So I challenge you this week, if you can, jot down that letter. If the person's not alive, fine. If you can't find them, fine. Write it. If you can give it to them, even better. What an awesome encouragement that would be for them to hear. But as we do it, my hope is that we see it's not an ulterior motive. It's an ultimate expression of love. And in the same way that the woman cannot help herself, she has to tell people. She's revolutionized by the love of Jesus. So we Christians are the same. Let's pray together. And Jesus, I want to say thank you for your word to us this morning. The truth is, we're the Samaritan woman, all of us. We're the ones who are broken in our sin. We're the ones who are the outcasts separated from you. God, we're the ones who have hearts that are full of, of dysfunction. And yet you see us all the way to the bottom. You know everything that's happening in our lives and in our hearts. We cannot conceal it. But you come to us not to, not to smite us, not to you know, harm us, but to love us, to care for us, and to give us the life that you offer. And so Jesus, I pray as a result of that, because of the love that you showed us, that we would love others the same way. Help us to be transformed by the love that you showed us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.